Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we are here with a very excellent guest today. He is an author, a podcaster, a journalist, and the author of the recent book, Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. I'm talking, of course, about Corey Pine. Let's give a big old Brooklyn welcome to Corey Pine. What's up, Corey? Hey, glad to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Wait, can I just ask? I want. I, I heard on Twitter that this is the official podcast of Antifa. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> uh, the mm. right wing seems to think so. Um, you know, you're also a programmer of you know some repute, so you know that there are all sorts of algorithms. So when a MAGA chud from say I don't know Minnesota or something wants to at Antifa, we're high enough up in like the followers ranking that we're one of the first um, you know Twitter accounts that comes up. So we're consistently constantly getting added as the official you know antifa antifa um twitter account which we use to hilarious purposes by trolling them and telling them that we are part of the central committee the hq indeed mm-hmm. of antifa in the united states if not the world so yeah it's good of you to pick up on that that's good i'm glad i wasn't misinformed <laughs> oh no m- m- most definitely not Corey, your um your book takes place in a in a hellish world called the Bay Area. Um, You are basically the left's equivalent of a troop, uh, I would say. Uh, You sacrificed so that we can move forward. You went into the valley, into the deep, dark depths, into the heart of darkness, and you returned triumphant. Um, You no longer live there, right? You're uh, now an expat, am I correct? (laughs) Well, really, I only uh, went there for the purposes of the book, and uh, I'm glad I didn't have to spend a minute more. Actually, when I went back for the book tour... Uh, it was, I was a little nervous. Yeah, I hope you brought um, a bodyguard. <laughs> you know, I only got one heckler, um, and they weren't in, uh, Mountain View or, uh, or at Stanford where I did readings, but they were at, uh, this, bo- uh, bookstore on the waterfront in San Francisco. And it was, this guy was really angry and just like spouting Facebook talking points at mm. me. And I, I would have been surprised if he actually worked there, but there was definitely like uh, definitely touched a nerve with people who were emotionally invested in the mythology of the tech industry. You, and God, the, you were the Howard Schultz in that uh, instance right there. Uh, how so? Well, he went and he did a, a book reading, right? The Starbucks oh, CEO right. guy. Yeah. And he got yelled at by an aggrieved person yeah. who had really good let's, points. Let's, and so did this person. I don't know that that really a Howard Schultz makes, babe. Like not everyone who gets yelled at is a Howard Schultz. Yes, they are. I'm sticking. This by was that. more like this was more like Howard Schultz showing up and being the heck. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. fair enough. <laughs> exactly. It's like the saddest thing ever when someone is that much of a bootlicker that they're willing to stand for these evil corporations that control our lives and our technocratic overlords. Like, what the hell? Well, that's kind of what I write about uh, because it was just the inescapable reality of the Bay area. You know, before I went down there, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and everybody said, Oh, you'll love San Francisco. And I kind of got the feeling I would have loved it 20 years ago yeah. or more, uh, like before all of these rich assholes ruined it. Right. Um, you know, so everybody, everybody who moves there now, you know, is, uh, is really hoping that they will emerge as like the next Mark Zuckerberg, in some sense. And, uh, it's a mass delusion, you know, it should be studied in, uh, like psychology programs or something. That's as old uh, as the because, American dream. 
right? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's the Horatio Alger myth, right? Um, yeah, and you, that ideology is so powerful. And and you again, like a good anthropologist, like uh, Napoleon Chignon, I believe the guy's name is, uh, who went and lived oh, among the uh, natives and saw these snot-nosed savages and their bizarre culture. Uh, you did the same thing. You lived amongst them, uh, but thankfully you got out. And then you you moved to Portland after that. Is that correct? Yeah, it was not my first time uh, living in Portland. And there, there were a lot of sort of moves in between. My wife's an academic. Um, and while I was reporting the book, she was, um, you know, in one of the last years of her PhD research in the UK. So I actually crossed back over the Atlantic to go live in San Francisco. And then we were back in the UK when I was done with my reporting. But then we moved to India, and then I moved back to Portland for like the third time. I was there was an alt there's an alt weekly there called the Lambert Week that has uh, employed me and uh, either laid me off or <laughs> uh, I have walked away from them. Uh, I think three times now. Hell well, yeah. no, I have three times hired, four times walked away. So nice. uh, hashtag walk away. <laughs> yeah, India kind of went uh, belly up because of some bullshit with BJP, honestly. And um, that's uh, Modi's party, you know, is I, that correct? Yeah, that's Modi's party, and I was on uh, um, Michael Brooks' show actually talking about um, you know the those connections with Tulsi Gabbard, and I could go on a whole rant about that, but that's not got that much to do with tech, except to the extent that you know um, the last the sort of epilogue of the book is set in India because I was there when uh, they the government inflicted this mass social experiment on oh God, yeah. a population of 1 billion, this program called demonetization, where they basically, uh, they took the two most common, uh, notes out of circulation. I think it, if I remember, it was the 500 rupee note and the thousand rupee note and just said like, these are invalid in three days mm -hmm. <laughs> they gave like no warning and so it caused a massive panic and their plan that they'd been sold on by this tech company um that had a corrupt relationship with the government reportedly uh was that everybody would use like mobile phone app payments um but there's not great connectivity in india there's a lot of farmers and poor people who either don't have a smartphone or don't have access to one you know like a whole village might share one gadget like that you know um plus the connectivity was bad and the app was badly designed so you know they basically it was kind of a worst case scenario for what can happen when you turn your you know economic policy over to tech bros Ooh, yeah. um i'm just gonna <laughs> stop you for a second i'm hearing a lot of rustling on your end Corey. i don't it's know it's my fucking cat. He knocked over oh my the. God. Got, uh, I'm gonna need that D mic and go kick him out because he knocked <laughs> over the humidifier. <laughs> Take your time, man. We understand. The, the struggle is real. Yeah. I noticed. He's great. He's a terrorist. Yeah, they are. They are the furry terrorists of our lives that pooed in our brains and made us like them for some insane fucking reason. Um, I noticed your cat is. I mean, all cats are weird psychos, but. I noticed your cat likes to eat vegetables, I saw in a picture. What's up with that? Yeah, he loves lettuce, and that was a picture of him trying kale for the first time. Aw, that's uh, sweet. Seemed, seemed to like it. I don't know what it's about. I Googled it, and apparently it's not that unusual, but uh, he's, he's, mostly, he's mostly into fish. Oh, yeah. How, but uh, how much of a cat dad are you? I want to know, um, did you massage the kale before you gave it to the... To, to, to a little pet or did you just give it to him raw 
Uh, it was raw. I didn't, wow. I didn't, uh, you know, soften it up or anything. I mean, I, uh, we have a really complex sort of, uh, psychological dynamic, but I don't, we, we understand. <laughs> we, we, I, we a hundred percent understand. I feel like you have to have a cat to really, um, get how fraught that relationship can be. But, um, it is nice to know that you're in our target demographic of leftist stay-at-home cat dads who like to smoke <laughs> weed and write books. Anybody who uh, isn't one yeah. of those, uh, just you know, stop listening right now. You're cut off. I'm glad to be catered to. So you know, it's not that niche of a market. I think you know, it's the mainstream is just waiting to uh, to discover us, and so it's good to have representation. Listen I think me. so. Representation matters. Um, I also want to thank you for a fun movie recommendation that you gave me a very long time ago for a little film called The Things We Do in the Shadows or What We Do in the Shadows. I don't know. It's a vampire roommate comedy from the Flight of the Concords dudes. Right. Super funny. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah. And like it, I, it took me a really long time to watch it, but not because I didn't want to. I was just like really fucking busy with other stuff i will watch any piece of crap with vampire in it um sean will confirm that this is true i watched true blood for until the bitter end like until way after it was entertaining at all um i watched the show bloodline for several seasons just waiting for the vampire stuff to happen she was absolutely convinced it was a vampire story and i'm like babe they're just florida people and they're outdoors in the sunlight all the time there's not going to be vampires like maybe they're daywalkers <laughs> when's the vampire stuff gonna happen it's a very good show but um now that it's over i can definitively say that nobody in it is a vampire that we know of not yet that's kind of a letdown. Uh, our big weekend plans, coincidentally, are to watch uh, or rewatch uh, the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula movie. And I don't oh, remember anything ooh. about it, really. Yeah, that's a classic with uh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, right? I think that's the one, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Vampires in the Zeitgeist for some reason. I think every goth girlfriend of mine in the 90s absolutely loved that movie when it came out. Uh, I just remember... No, this this isn't the one. No, are you sure you're not thinking of the Anne Rice adaptation? I forget what Interview, that was with, Interview a with a Vampire. Oh, I'm thinking of Interview with a Vampire. I'm sorry, my bad. Which wow. one are you thinking? You of? spend so long dating us, and you still don't know our culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry about that. I, I guess the Coppola one's a different movie. Maybe we can jump on Twitch or something, and we could do like a live stream, all of us, because I clearly have not seen it. And I You're canceled. I guess I'm canceled. That's another word for divorce in the goth community. When uh, you get canceled for not liking vampire movies. That's rough. Uh, vamp dom. Um, <laughs> oh my god. I am being vamp dommed as we speak. Oh, babe, uh, there's some hot news out there, right? Um, yes. There's indeed. one of uh, one of the fangs, and this is an important term that folks are going to have to know uh, going through this podcast, this episode today. The fangs uh, stands for Facebook. It's not a vampire thing. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. <laughs> Netflix. And Google, right? The big tech companies. Now, yeah. one of those... It's very different. Vampires are <laughs> sexy and cool, okay? Now, Bezos may be sexy. He may be cool, but we don't know because he's done everything except show us his goddamn hog. Yeah, hog It's a GTFO. matter of time, though, right? I mean, it's... You, it's you... It, we're we're going to see it. I, we're not going to be denied Bezos' hog. You it's, are the expert. 
Do you want to throw a number I, down? Like, what do you think? 40%, 80% chance we see his hog in the next month? Well, I don't see why, you know, if, if they have the pictures and, um, you know, this much is out in the open, I, I, and it was blackmail, let's just assume it's part of a blackmail attempt of some kind. Um, you know, if, if, you know, it's all, if this much is out there, I, I just don't see how it doesn't leak. Um, so I, I think I'd give it a 60% chance. Uh, oh, hell yeah. You heard it here first, folks. It's going to leak with clap or gonorrhea. We're not sure yet. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> well, we've already seen the sexts, and I think they just confirm what we already knew about our new class of technocratic overlords, which is that in addition to being uh, bloodthirsty and evil and literally surviving on our life force, um, like Peter Thiel when he gets his blood transfusions from... Uh, from the blood of the poor. Or when they, they steal are speaking of vampires. Yeah. Right, yeah. They are also incredibly boring <laughs> as evidenced by these sects. I don't even want to call them sects. They're just like they're so lame. Um, Do you have them queued up? I mean oh, yeah. the, one, the the most notable thing I thought about them was that Bezos called his mistress a live girl and <laughs> mm, so I alive and full of blood. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if if that is some kind of uh, veiled threat like a serial killer would make or an autocorrect thing or if, a, you know, a private joke like couples tend let, to have. Let me actually we have that. Let's read that entire thing. and let, okay. Let's get some context to this. So this is from the Inquirer. Uh, Bezos wrote this is a text to this woman. I love you, alive girl. I will show you with my body and my lips and my eyes, comma, very soon. Now, Corey, I think you're right. You could read that. I love you alive, girl. Or you can read it. I love you, comma, alive girl, as it says. But it does seem a, a bit threatening, I would say. What do you think? Oh. I think that we need to go with Occam's razor here. And especially with the benefit of hindsight, we know there were, uh, you know, there was a pictorial element to the sex as well. So I think that the safest thing to do is just assume that this was a one-hand uh, texting job. <laughs> Get that mental image that, in uh, there. That horny, man, that horny guy, Petois, that I was talking about a couple episodes ago, that's real. Everyone acted like they didn't know what I was talking about, but everybody, it's a definitely a thing. Everybody at home listening, go to your web browser. It doesn't matter if you use Google or Bing. We don't really care. They're all monsters. And go and look up the picture of Bezos eating the iguana, that shining bald head of his, and imagine what his other hand is doing at the same time. And hold that mental image for as long as you possibly can before you vomit. And, and then read the second part of the sex, which we have not yet gotten to, which reads, I want to smell you. I want to breathe uh. you in. Mm, nom nom. I want to hold you tight. I want to kiss your lips. I love you. I am in love with you. Which, like, mm, is that what he said to that iguana before he ate it? <laughs> that last bit's probably what caused the divorce, I would assume. You know, uh, the, he, was, the, the... he could not have been more clear. <laughs> it's interesting. Because, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, Corey. Oh, I was going to say that the part about loving with his eyes uh, is especially creepy if you see any picture of Jeff Bezos. Oh, I mean, yeah. he does have a very bug-eyed thing going on, and it does look like something that he might be capable of. Listen, we've uh, said before on the show that we're not entirely convinced that David Icke is not correct and that we are ruled by a race of transdimensional lizard people. In which case, he would be a cannibal, too, on top of all his other ah, crimes. Right, yeah. 
He's eating well, his own. That's assuming that he's an iguana. <laughs> that's true. Type. We don't know what dimensional reptile. I mean, he could be just a bigger kind of lizard, and I think it's pretty much fair game in reptile land. You know, yeah. he could be a Nile you know. monitor. They don't give a fuck. <laughs> They'll eat anything. So I think it's fair to say that our uh, ruling class, which we are going to talk about because we're going to go deep into Corey's book here, uh, has moved from blood transfusions perhaps to uh, cannibalistic guana uh, sexual perversions and now maybe even into necrophilia because they love you, alive girls. So, Corey, let's... I think that would technically not be necrophilia, but... Um, and I know you have a question, but there's one more thing I want to <laughs> yeah, say. Yes, please do. It's a little do. more serious about this whole Bezos case because, you know, it's about the dick pics now and it's about, you know, warring oligarchs, basically. So I don't expect that will ever really find out the truth but you know the daily beast was reporting uh in a series of stories at least two stories that's a series right yeah, sure. that you know he had hired these this like elite private investigation security firm to figure out how the text leaked and you know they the part of the reporting was that they considered his mistress as you know a, a suspect mm -hmm. right in, in leaking uh these texts naturally and, prompting the divorce well as you do but uh there we haven't gotten a lot of detail about what this firm did to investigate his mistress i mean did they follow her around mm. you know did they just ask for her phone so they could do an audit i mean if you think about it in the context of just you know strip aside all the other stuff but just think about it in interpersonal terms it would be stuff that i think would raise yellow or red flags um about you know, male uh, possessive conduct, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah fair enough. It's and so maybe that just goes with the territory of, like, fucking an oligarch, but uh, still, it's kind of messed up. It's really annoying because, like, Jeff Bezos is super evil, but if, if they're actually doing this as a way of getting back at the Washington Post for reporting on the Khashoggi killing, that's evil, too. Can right. they both lose? That would be ideal, right? They, they both <laughs> yeah. lose. I agree. Anyway, sorry, you did have a question. Oh, I no. I, there was just a little, a, little, a little book that you wrote called Live, Work, 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 Die. And now we're just going to segue over into that. And seamlessly. Seamlessly. And one of the, uh, obviously, you talk about that ruling class that we're speaking of. But you talk about class in general, which I think uh, is a really important sort of departure point for understanding the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley and big tech in general. Because so often it's about privacy or it's about the you know i don't know what uh the the, the relations between people you know on social media this that and the other thing what connectivity are doing to our children yeah it's about helping with connectivity but you really making the world a better place you really ground this in the class elements that exist over there so tell us a bit about the uh project uh, yeah how long did you go to silicon valley for first of all well, it was two trips uh, with about six or eight months. It's been a few years, so I, I don't remember exactly. But I did I did make multiple trips. Um, and, you know, a lot of the book ended up being about this sort of uh, gentrification and, uh, you know, cost of living uh, class struggle that was everywhere in the Bay Area simply because, um, you know, on 
the money I had from my advance to do the book, I could not really afford to live there, yeah, <laughs> right? Right, right? And do the reporting. So, uh, you know, part of the reason the book uh, was shaped the way it was is because I, I was trying to have as authentic and, uh, you know, fortune-seeking entrepreneurial experience as I could uh, by, you know, showing up like so many people did, you know, with an app, and an, and an idea that maybe they could get some venture capital investment and turn it into a company and, you know, liberate themselves from the reality of their conditions, which were, you know, like dorm barracks style housing. Uh, you it know. was harrowing just to read, honestly, Corey. Just reading it was harrowing. Yeah, because like part of why I want to know how long you did this for is because it seems like extremely grueling and i say that as somebody who has taken acid and gone to see hillary clinton speak surrounded by secret <laughs> service agents it was pretty rough i mean i don't you know i if if it had if i'd had to do a whole year um well first of all i would have run out of money like I, it just would not have been possible right. uh but really it was as grueling or more grueling than i was able to portray i mean you know uh, the the I, I there's even some places that I cut out simply because you know the editors were like this is, this is too much too dark you know? like <laughs> yeah I mean there was stuff that got cut because it was too dark wow. honestly um, you know there's one uh, place I described that sort of become like the archetypal uh, like techno Airbnb slumlord uh, experience that was in a neighborhood. Uh, gentrifying neighborhood in San Francisco called Excelsior, which mm. is like majority uh, immigrant, a lot of um, Vietnamese families, a lot of uh, people from Central America. And, you know, this house by the freeway had been flipped basically by a real estate, small time real estate investor. Uh, it was a small house. Like I, I think, you know, if I think of the layout is like three bedrooms, I guess. I'm not sure what they were originally designed as, but like I walked in and the first thing I see is like, there's no living room because they put up a screen and they had put two beds that they were renting an Airbnb in the living room, like cots. Right. Um, and then there was like opposite that there was a, a, a room with um, a, a whole family, like, oh. <laughs> like two, um, uh, parents like from South Asia uh, and their son who I, who I like, they didn't speak English. Their son did. He was like trying to get a job or get into school or something. Um, and they were there like all the time, all crammed into one room. Uh, then there was a couple who was like, talk about class, like uh, in culinary school, working like bartending jobs across the Bay in Oakland and commuting and then trying to go to school and like, they like I I don't I think they might have gotten reduced to like a sentence in the book, but they had one of the worst times of it, mm. you know, because like they were they weren't even trying to do tech. They were just trying to survive in the, you know, city that tech had created. Right. Um, and I remember when uh, they got kicked out because, you know, they're managing agent basically was Airbnb uh, and the landlord had already 
uh, booked out ahead because, you know, their paychecks came late from their restaurant jobs and she wouldn't give them like a week, uh, which was probably illegal, right? Like according to the housing laws in San Francisco, because they'd been there for more than a month, right? Technically they're tenants and they have yeah, tenants all the have rights, rights. Of a tenant, It's hard right? to evict a tenant under the law. Well, but it's also hard to find a place to live. So, like, whatever the law says, like, the reality is, like, they had to find another place. They could have, I suppose, sat there and, like, uh, fought, but, like, they had no advocate, right? Yeah, and they was, had at no a certain point, it's just easier. At, that's true. And at a certain point, it's, like, easier to just book another Airbnb. Right. So yeah. part of the reason they didn't have solidarity, I mean, talk about the conditions, is, like, you know, just moving down the hall, then you see the, the sort of like signs of the like printed out office paper that are like pictures of surveillance cameras yeah. <laughs> or like common areas are monitored. I forget exactly what they said. It's in the book, you know, um, and there's things like this all over the house. No, so no it's like socializing in the kitchen, right? Which would be yeah. the right place. Yeah, uh, you no, could, no they socializing. Said, yeah. So, yeah. I mean. Go ahead. It seems like the whole thing is set up to keep people from having solidarity with one another um, along the lines of their common interests, right? Because, like, one of the major ways that people are confronting capital right now is via tenant organizing, um, particularly in the Bay Area where housing is such a big issue. And, like, it just makes sense to me that the landlord would do everything they could to, like, nip that shit in the bud. I mean, to the degree that capitalism hasn't already. You know, they weren't even thinking about uh, that level of pushback. I mean, you know, they, uh, although now maybe it's changed. I mean, most of the reporting was done like 2014, 2015. And, you know, a lot of the organizing efforts have really taken off. I mean, at that time, they were really focused on the Mission neighborhood another sort of uh, historically Latino area that's just been completely gentrified by tech money. And, um, you know, basically rich, uh, relatively rich, um, white and East Asian kids who are getting jobs at the big tech companies out of college, getting paid six figures. You know, there is a, not only a real estate industry, but a whole, every, you know, industry you can think of set up to cater to their, you know, pretty, I wouldn't describe their lifestyles as pampered, but if, you know, (laughs) compared, compared to the people who are displaced, it certainly is. Um, They're, they're pampered in the sense that, you know, they're, they're paid fairly well by, you know, urban U.S. standards, especially for young people. And, um, you know, they get lots of perks like free meals at their job and they get shuttled to and from work. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is coming to New York and coming to Long Island city. Amazon Uh, locates there. I mean, that's, that's part of, you know, I I hope that people maybe who haven't checked out the book in New York city, check it out just for that element that I talked about. Seriously. Uh, I don't um, know that people realize how bad it can get. Yeah. Cause like (laughs) reading the book made me feel a whole lot better about the conditions we're living under in New York city. Both of us. (laughs) If that, uh, that should give folks some idea of just how bad things are there. Like, like Sean and I live in our, what is arguably a pretty cool neighborhood. Yeah. We have a lot of, uh, restaurants and yeah. bars around and, uh, a lot of my friends live around there and there are lots of things That's to good, do. Good public we have, uh, yeah, we're pretty close to the train. 
Um, we have what is a fairly nice and spacious one-bedroom apartment that we share with the two uh, little furry fascists that we live with. <laughs> and it's about 1900 a month. I'm going to tell on ourselves. That's I'm just going to fully disclose that. And like that's actually good compared to San Francisco. It is. It is. Uh, and, you know, I've... I was in New York last year and I was shocked how much better the market was. Although, you know, that can change yeah, it's, uh, it's... pretty quickly, especially when these companies start deciding that they want to take over a neighborhood, you know, and it tends to start with, you know, one underdeveloped area and uh, pretty soon. I mean, well, I don't know, you know, Queens, uh, it's really just a process that already happened to Manhattan for different you know, because of different reasons, right? Uh, the Bloomberg years uh, pretty much sold out <laughs> Manhattan as far as being a place where, the, you know, you could be a working class person and survive. And the same thing happened to Brooklyn. I mean, I was able to live in Brooklyn and afford Brooklyn when I got out of grad school in like, oh, 2005, mm -hmm. 2004, uh, 2005. And, you know, it's, there's just no, there's no safe place there's nowhere to run from this phenomenon i mean the bay area is like has geographic differences and demographic differences and stuff and it's much more dependent on this one industry than new york is on right. any one industry right. right but uh what's happened to san francisco affected every surrounding uh you know city like oakland uh like uh, you know, the Silicon Valley towns down in Palo Alto and up and out over, over even into Fremont. I mean, there's really just, there's nowhere to go, you know? And when I went back to Portland where I was living until last November, like November, 2018, um, you know, that city was taking spillover from people who just couldn't afford to live in the Bay area anymore. Right. So, I mean, you know, part of, part of what I write about is not just like how this, mentality of like striving and hustling and you're going to break through and you're going to be the one that gets the multi-million dollar deal to sell your app or whatever it is uh meanwhile your actual material day-to-day -day conditions are just sinking lower and lower uh not just about how that sort of crushes people who are in invested in it like individually and, and personally invested in it uh, but how it ruins like the, the urban fabric for everybody else right. uh, and, and makes it just harder to survive in general. And as part of a bigger process of like basically refutilizing the economy, I mean, that's uh, really what all of this uh, disruption is amounting to. And, and I think Amazon, you know, you mentioned Fang, you know, the yes. uh, Facebook. Uh, I forget if the A is Amazon or Apple. Sometimes people yeah, swap that. Whatever. You know, forget Netflix and Facebook, you know, Amazon is really the dangerous one. And if I, you know, if I were starting the book now, I would definitely hone in more on Amazon, even though other people have sort of tackled it, because they're unlike any of these other sort of tech behemoths in a position to really restructure the economy according to the whims of Jeff Bezos. And yeah. it's already happening, you know, like uh, in, in terms of uh, retail and what it has done to, uh, you know, city life and how people sort of shop and, and logistics channels, like where our stuff comes from, 
you know, the working conditions all the way along the supply chain. I mean, Amazon is a dangerous one. Yeah. And I think they're the only one that could institute some kind of – there's been talk about this in Silicon Valley. Another thing that there just simply wasn't room for in the book um, was the way that, you know, tech oligarchs are talking about addressing the problems that they've created. Um, basically, you know, that's their businesses not solving problems, but creating problems and then right. finding ways to profit off of the problems they created. So there's a lot of enthusiasm among these hyper libertarian capitalists who, for universal basic income. Yes, and yes, we wanted to talk about this for sure. There's even talk about, well, do you need, uh, like some VC firm, I think it was Y Combinator, which is one of the just most toxic <laughs> of the VC firms. Uh, had a plan where do we even need to wait for a government to institute UBI or can we do it as, you know, private individuals. And, you know, when you think about what that would actually mean, it's like having a company store for everything. Yeah. You know, company coming back. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in some ways the Bay area has already become a collection of company towns. I mean, these, these companies have campuses and they shuttle their workers in. And although the, the housing that they're in that I described is, you know, privately held separate from it's, it's not like vertically integrated. Right. Um, eventually it will be (laughs) right. So, you know, their workers will be in this, inescapable system and that's really the sort of post-capitalist vision that these new monopolies have is sort of providing services that governments used to provide uh in a way that is inescapable right yeah so their vision of how society ought to be ordered is like a collection of corporate monopolies that we as individuals have the freedom to choose between. So like you don't get, you might not get to vote anymore except you vote once to whether you want to be an Apple person or a, you know, Microsoft person or an Amazon person. Uh, right. Uh, that's the competition we're in at this point. Yeah. It, uh, you, you put a lot out there and it's all, um, it's great to get stuff that isn't in the book. And I think that ultimately, you know, what your book does a great job of and what you've done a great job of just now describing is this sort of new period, this this moment of uh, post-industrial capitalism uh, such as it exists in the United States and uh, across the world. Uh, it's not, of course, actually post-industrial. The uh, industry has just moved around. But when you're talking about gentrification, you're talking about company towns, and you're talking about things like Airbnb and this sort of disruption that happens, uh, we're maybe at the peak of what's probably a 50-year cycle where in the post-war period there was massive disinvestment from the city. And we all know what that looks like because we've all seen Escape from New York and we've all, you know, heard that the Bronx is burning and all that good stuff. Um, you know, the burnt out husk of the inner city was sort of this trope from the 60s, 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Now, of course, for the working class people who live there where the jobs left and the capital left and uh, their services started to fall apart, as we all know, they managed to survive and eke out a living. Um, until, of course, capital, uh, because of the way that it moves around and, you know, the way it profits work, decided to go back into the city. So now we have the opposite problem where there is this massive amount of capital coming back into cities, mostly because of the nature of the industries, which is the service or tertiary sector of the economy, uh, media, finance, insurance, real estate, all these things, um, basically making it unlivable 
for the people that either stuck it out or for the people that capital actually needs in order to have that entire economy work in the first place. Because you mentioned it a bit in the book, and I'd like to tease it out a little bit more. You know, there have been generations of people living in San Francisco, which is historically a working class town, and they, I don't imagine how you can have a functioning economy, even for these, you know, pampered young uh, tech bros who want their $20 burritos and their $15 cocktails. If you can, if you don't have the working class to provide those things, if you don't have firefighters who are able to live in the city that they're working in to put out those fires, if they have to travel two, three hours, it is a dystopian social system. What's happening to the working class in San Francisco and these other places facing gentrification? Uh, well, remember those Fiverr ads that came out that oh, were like, oh my God. you know, glorifying, again, the hustle and... Uh, like suggesting that sleep deprivation was just something that you should embrace aspirational. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's a sign that you're working hard. I mean, that's the sort of uh, lifestyle and propaganda that the working class is being uh, subjected to uh, without much choice um, in the matter. I mean, one of the people I talked to in the book, I just, you know, I, I, I didn't want to, load up a bunch of theory in the book. I wanted it to be like, you are there. Oh, that's, you what, you're, that's so what you're a here lot for, of, though. That's what you're on Antifada for. We're going we're gonna to work that one out. A lot, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, you know, examples I use are just people I happen to encounter. And one of them, I think, speaks to this. It was a working class uh, school bus driver uh, who lived in Oakland. And she, between, you know, the morning when she picked up the kids and dropped them off at school and the afternoon when she, uh, you know, picked them up at school, took them back to their, uh, stops near their homes, uh, drove around San Francisco in a lift. And then she got back in the lift after she was done with her second shift. And I mean, I don't know how many John, Oh, she also had a startup that Ah, she used our, our ride as uh, an opportunity to let me know about. It was kind of funny and awkward because, like, her startup was basically a sex toy shop. (laughs) Was it called Ruby? Ruby I used a fake name. Ah, I mean, that was one of those things where I changed the names. (laughs) I I like your fake name, though. It was good. It was pretty close to, I think think in the book I called it Racy Ladies with a Z. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was something very uh, much in that sort of spirit. Uh, in real life, but we won't dox this. You one. know, we don't like, think of the real, the real name of it. Well, I didn't want to. I mean, you know, part of part of the thing was like I, you know, I was kind of mean in the way that I described some people. Not her; she was great, but uh, you actually you described. Know. Sorry to stop you, but uh, um, actually, her roommate in the Airbnb you were staying at said a racist remark towards her. Was that or was that different? different? No, that, was, that was a different person. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, Come on. But the idea there and also there was a lot of casual racism and stuff like that that I encountered. And rather than risk all of these people suing me, you know, I changed their names. You know, I didn't tell everybody. Well, that's not true. I told pretty much everybody that I was working on a book. But at the time, the working title was like how to make 30 billion dollars the Silicon Valley way. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I just kind of let people assume whatever they assumed about what kind of book that was. Yeah, Uh, I was. (laughs) <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to ask you about the kind of ethical boundaries it, when you're doing this kind of first person journalism, because it's something that I've come up against as well in my travels. Um, 
like maybe I haven't always gotten it exactly right. I always say that I'm a journalist and then like, oh, if people want to like do drugs in front of me or whatever, you know, that's their prerogative. But um, it's especially going to be hard when I write my uh, book or my which is to some degree a memoir. I guess I'm still figuring it out Um, because like it's hard. How, How do you how do you decide like who whose name to use and whose name to take out and like 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 sometimes I'm writing about public figures and I feel like they should have their names in there sometimes I'm writing about private individuals and I feel like they shouldn't and then like there's also just like um am I gonna hurt someone's feelings with their portrayal here and it kind of comes down I think partly to like my moral judgment of them like if that person was a huge asshole to me, I don't feel responsible to be kind to them. Or if they were, you know, maybe a more complicated person, I feel obligated to show them from multiple sides, even if they were an asshole to me. Like, where, where do you come down on all that? I think your personal moral judgment is uh, something that should be factored in to when you make those decisions. But also, I mean, for me, I... I... <sighs> I, th- I think I went into it a bit in, in the introduction, uh, but, you know, there, I applied, you know, partly a legal test thinking ahead. Like if I said something about this person that, uh, you know, they would take issue with, are they under the law a public figure, you know? So like, d- because that has an effect on like their grounds for a libel case if they decided to sue for libel. Uh, and I also thought, you know, in more ambiguous terms, like, is this person a civilian or not? Like, are they experienced in dealing with the media? Should they know what to expect when they're talking to a journalist and whether to be careful or not? Um, I And some people, you know, uh, I went back to like there were people I went back to just to admit, say, like, are you sure you're OK with me using your name? You know, like there's a VC I interviewed uh, and used his real name and he was, you know, great. He was extremely cynical about the business uh, and he gave me a lot of good insights. And, you know, when uh, I also told him, like, I part I was I was there pitching a startup. Right. My startup was I, I pitched a few different ones, but only one made the cut. Laborize. You know, lab, laborize. The idea oh, with laborize yeah. was you would use a. You would hire us, and we would organize a union at your competing company. <laughs> so brilliant. And how did and that then, go? <laughs> uh, the VCs hated it. I mean, you know, this guy, though, he, he kind of laughed, and he was like, they're going to wonder if you're serious or not. Um, and, you know, that is pretty much exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not... I'm not like Nathan Fielder when it comes to being able to pull something off. Also, I think if you bring in cameras and all of that, like (laughs) it changes the dynamic. So, you know, if there had been cameras, I think people might like if I'd had an entourage, people might have bought it a little more. Uh, But definitely it threw off the VCs. A lot of the main reaction I got was like crazy enough to work. You know, when I was pitching it to people that I you know, figured we're libertarian and their sort of outlook, I would leave out the part where, you know, uh, eventually this will result in the destruction of capitalism because <laughs> you will topple companies one by one until there's just one company left. Ah, right. <laughs> and then all you have to do is strike. Yeah. Uh, or co it. 
So I'd leave that part out when I was pitching it to libertarians. But if you know, I did pitch it to a Teamsters union guy, right? right. Uh, who it, and uh, and then I was, you know, I, I altered the pitch a little bit. But it, it, so far as like whose names you use, I mean, it was kind of a judgment call. I mean, there were people like there was one young entrepreneur, and I know you wanted to talk about like are people who do startups labor or oh, capital? We're getting to that. Your okay. thesis there is really good, but go on. Yeah. Well, there's one guy I talked to who was like. I didn't use his name. Um, initially, I was going to, but then, you know, circumstances changed a little bit, and I thought, I better not. Uh, he was such a great example of, uh, you know, the wannabe entrepreneur because, you know, he was a, like, middle-class kid who, you know, worked in the service industry. I think his last job before he launched a startup, he was managing a chain restaurant, right? Like, uh, like a franchise, not like the whole company, right? Um, and he, with a few friends, decided to do a Groupon clone, you know, which at the time was a more saleable ideal than it sounds right now because nobody's really using Groupon anymore. But back then, it was the thing, right? So uh, they, he and his friends had actually managed to build an app and uh, raise about $4 million dollars. Um, and I met him at this conference and it was only, it only took like two drinks and he was just like, I'm miserable. If I had to do it over again, I would have taken a job with the government because at least then I would have some stability and it's destroyed my friendships and I don't sleep anymore. And I was like, I'm sorry, man. Like, cause people would look at him and be like, he's, there was a whole subclass of people who hadn't gotten, had just their apps or their ideas and hadn't gotten the investment. Not even right? $4 so million. Whole, dollars. So, exactly. So he, you know, he was very, this was him after a couple of drinks, but the rest of the time he was out there with his like, um, you know, his gimmicky outfit so that he would get noticed and stand out and his pitch and he was selling it hard. And, you know, I, I fell out of touch with him. And, and then, you know, maybe eight months later when I sat down to do the writing, like the actual writing, like cutting off the reporting has to write now. <laughs> uh, I loop back and I can't get in touch with him. And I, I find a blog post that he wrote where he describes his suicide attempt because he was just so stressed out financially and in every other way. That was dark. Man. And it was really grim stuff. So like in a circumstance like that, like I'm definitely not going to use his name. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, but it's a story that still needs to be told. So, you know, it's kind of a struggle. Like, uh, you know, there's people responding to some of the current ethical scandals in journalism by saying, oh my God, you have to record everything. And, and I'm just like, no, <laughs> you know, there's, there's room for other approaches. Like I have my notebook in my back pocket most of the time. And then I would scurry off to the bathroom and write down as much as I could remember you know, for, uh, large parts of the book. And I think that's a legitimate way to do reporting. <laughs> you were like a, you were like a proletarian CIA operator, basically. You were in undercover. I mean, it wasn't totally undercover though. Cause I was like, I'm doing a book and I'm doing a startup. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I didn't want to be under, in some ways I think the book would have been more effective if I'd just been totally undercover and, lied to everybody about whether I was writing a book. Well, um, but I, I, you know, I spent too many years working at newspapers. I wasn't comfortable with that. Yeah, so that's fair. Yeah. So I guess the culture of Silicon Valley, like you talk about in the book is such that when you tell them you're writing a book, they don't assume that you're writing a critical book, right? No, they've never read a critical book. I mean, they don't even, re uh, what I found is that like many of the tech 
vaccine people didn't even read tech news websites when they reported about the companies that they worked for. Like it's not, it's not like a literacy culture so much as it is like a posting culture. Yeah. I guess Um, that worked to your advantage a little bit. I mean, I get it. Like I was an English major. I used to read a book a week. Now it takes me a really long time to finish a book. And that's with me like caring about it and trying. Like my brain is totally poisoned by the internet. Unless it's Corey Pines live, work, 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 Indeed. But but, like, I can only imagine what it's like for these tech people who've never even tried to fight it. They don't believe in books. I mean, (laughs) they don't, they don't believe in, they have like, you know, it, it was disturbing how much the uh, intellectual culture or lack thereof was perfectly set up to sort of promote uh, or at least dovetail with a lot of the things that have enabled like fascist propaganda to thrive. Like they believe, you know, they believe the internet is the superior or the ultimate medium. Right. And that, it renders other forms of communication obsolete and why bother with a book or a newspaper and the ideas they have about journalism tend to be the kind of stuff that you hear at Trump rallies, Mm. you know, um, fake news, fake news. Yeah. And, and they think that their own methods are, I mean, the most benign example would be somebody like Nate Silver, right? Who, when he left the New York times, you know, had some legitimate criticisms about the culture there, but you know, his pitch for a media company it was like we're going to do better journalism with math and <laughs> you know the first the first thing i mean not only is it tremendously obnoxious and lifeless and it just sucks the fucking energy out of uh you know journalism and and something that should be like lively and relevant to people's lives uh it's just wrong it's like a it's like you can't capture uh the the moment, uh, whether in a political sense or an aesthetic sense, uh, by uh, quantified methods alone. But that, like the you know, the culture of tech is quantitative supremacy over anything. They're all STEM lords. They did not study uh, English or ethics or history, especially not history. Uh, they. You know, and it informs their political attitudes too. Uh, you know, this sort of anti-humanities bent uh, because uh, they're likely to sympathize with arguments like, uh, you know, feminist underwater basket weaving is creating mushy-headed, right. uh, you know, economically disposable or useless um, SJWs. Oh God, Jamie. Yeah, it's as so an SJW, cool. What do you think? Oh my God, I was gonna say it's so cool to have our new uh, mafia overlords be in charge of the entire fourth estate. It's awesome. I love it. It's terrifying. I mean, you know, it, it's. Uh, I even feel weird about being on Patreon now because, like, Kush, one of the Kushner Bros is like one of the major investors. Oh no! Oh yeah, oh, I think we probably will be thrown off Patreon eventually. <laughs> so hopefully, by the time that happens, there will be like a new left version of that that we can jump to and it will likely be my fault when that happens um Corey, you you come up with some you said you didn't want to get too theory laden in your book but your thesis about uh what is capital and what is labor in the valley uh, i think is really really interesting and it comes out of your experience um in terms of my experience i have a couple of relatives who are in tech uh they make good livings one of them is my uncle we'll call him bilbo 
Uh, and uh, Bilbo okay. uh, was very. Well, we don't want to dox my uncle. He's a listener of the At show. At least it's not a Harry name. Potter. Thank you for not using a Harry Potter character. Thanks, thanks. And thanks for not using any Foucault language uh, in your book. That was really awesome. But uh, my uncle, he um, he kind of did this this great little track where he went to a small computer company. He was always obsessed with the programming. Small computer company on Long Island. Then he worked for the government. Then he went to Microsoft. And then he is now at Google when they moved back to New York. When they moved to New York, I should say. He came back and he works as like a middle manager for them. And uh, my brother, we'll call him Frodo. Uh, my brother has an advanced degree and he too kind of landed at one of these big app companies that's stable and actually makes profits. It's probably on your phone. I'm not going to tell you who Frodo works for, right? But in both cases, instead of chasing this dream, instead of being uh, more chum in the shark tank of uh, Silicon Valley, they managed to find relatively stable careers by not doing what you were attempting to do and you know showing what people were trying to do in the valley which is to become the next unicorn which is to say i am going to go and i'm going to move to palo alto i'm going to jump into an incubator i am going to create the next big idea i'm going to get venture capitalist uh, funding and then i'm going to have a well, several rounds and then i'm eventually going to end up with a billion dollar company that let's call a unicorn and this incessant drive towards this entrepreneurial, I don't know, ideological, almost, yeah, like like mirage, essentially. Because it sounds like it's called being an American. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> yes, it is very American, right? But uh, you know, these people, these entrepreneurs, you argue in the book, you know, they they're almost like laborers, right? For for big capital. Explain how that works a little bit. Most most people who go uh, to try to strike it rich in tech with an idea for a company are effectively labor, even if they imagine that they're capital. And there's a whole apparatus set up to make them think that they're capital. Um, but the reality for a successful entrepreneur like the guy I described who ended up trying to kill himself is that you'll get a minimal VC investment because they spread their, their, their bets really wide, right? Hoping that one company becomes the next Facebook and pays for all the others and then some, right? Uh, and then you will have investors up your ass, like every day telling you how to run things, telling you to, you know, squeeze your employees more to squeeze users more so that they can get margins, uh, maybe get another round of investment and find their exit so that they can get out <laughs> of their investment ahead. I mean, that's all that most people are looking for at the end that, of the day. That fuck you money and then uh, go off and live the dream, right? Yeah. And so you're off, you're also talking about people who are pretty unsophisticated, at least compared to professional investors when it comes to uh, writing agreements for share structures and things like that. So a lot of people who have a fancy title like founder and CEO and might even have like a sizable or uh, even majority stake in their own company after getting investment will wind up getting screwed uh, as the company grows. Um, I saw that myself at a startup I worked for in London for a while, um, you know, and pretty much any time you see a, a sale and it's spun as, or an acquisition and it's spun as like a win-win, mm. uh, a, means a bunch of people are getting laid off and, you know, people that poured a lot of time and energy and, you know, their uh, spirit into building something are losing it. I mean, that's, that's what all of those stories mean. But then you've got the tech press, which is like not even really... I mean, talk about journalistic standards uh, slipping. I mean, it's it's really just a PR 
uh, adjunct of the industry that's designed to make sure that people don't realize how it actually works uh, when they win in tech. More often than not, they're losers. And the people that actually come out ahead, like Zuckerberg, I mean, what's different about Mark Zuckerberg and all of these unicorn types? I mean, they all do fit kind of a profile of kids who went to Harvard, <laughs> you know? Stanford is the big example of that, Stanford, right? Stanford, yeah. I mean, Stanford is really, I mean, somebody could do a book just about Stanford and the corruption of education uh, through the intrusion of capital. Because, I mean, there's one example in the book of this company called Klinkle, which um, when Valleywag was still alive, they did a lot of great reporting on. Uh, and, you know, Klinkle was a company that was anointed as the next unicorn by, like, the president of Stanford and the head of a department that were advising it and lining up investment. A bunch, I think, uh, when this comp when they, when these university administrators managed to line up a bunch of venture capital for this company run by students, which didn't even have a product or even a solid idea, uh, they, it was the, like the largest exodus of students from a program that had happened to date. I mean, it was like more than a dozen students dropped out to go work for this company at the urging of their university, like advisors. Right. Uh, and the company ended up being a total flop. There was nothing to it. And it sort of exposed the racket in every respect. And this was like, well before the Theranos investigations, right? right? right. Uh, you know, it was a clear example of people who are supposed to be looking out for young folks, just using them as pawns in an effort to uh, boost their own status and maybe get something that really, really catapults you into the oligarch class, like a board seat at Google or something. Mm -hmm. um, that's the real currency and that's the real elite. I mean, most people, even, you know, people working in VC offices are just as I put it in the book, drones. Um, they're, they're never going to strike it rich. The happiest people are kind of like your relatives mm -hmm. who have a, who have a, a saleable skill, uh, like programming or whatever, and don't try to found companies mm -hmm. and just sort of do it as a nine to five and, you know, uh, keep their head down and aren't into the flash and everything. Those people are out there. They don't really get written about, um, because it's boring. And it's the part of the tech industry that exists regardless of where the boom bust cycle is. Right, and it's right. mostly, it's mostly underwritten by the government. I mean, it is ah. kind of like a government contractor. Wow. You, 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 Corey, thank you for segueing us. Uh, we actually, we wanted to get a bit into the history that you talk about, um, about how these companies made their initial money. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who you may have heard of, good New friend Yorker, of the show. friend of the show, uh, she recently made a splash on the news. She was interrogating some asshole, I don't know, some fucking jack off in Congress about how um, most the majority of the medical research that's done in the United States is done by the government. It's publicly funded. But then the profits for that and the patents get completely turned over to capital uh, in a way that basically the um, uh, profits are uh, privatized uh, out of a public good. So this also was actually the primitive accumulation that uh, gave rise to big tech itself, right, including Stanford University. You want to run us through a little bit, you know, how this process uh, began in the 60s, 70s, 80s? I mean, it really goes back to the World War II period. Um, everything that Silicon Valley has produced is 
underwritten by military research um, one way or another. And, you know, Stanford uh, sort of in the 60s did become the, uh, along with MIT, sort of the nexus of a new idea of of privatizing the fruits of government research. Um, and, you know, there was uh, some of the earlier examples were like Hewlett Packard um, in Silicon Valley. Uh, later on, uh, stuff that we think of as, you know, being the product of uh, corporate innovation, like pretty much everything Apple Computer made, from you know the mouse interface to the touchscreen. Later on, is something that came out of either DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is basically the Pentagon's R and D department. DARPA, more like DERPA, am I right? <laughs> Or uh, another outfit called InQtel, which is actually a venture capital fund that's owned and controlled by the CIA uh, that has an office on Sand Hill Road uh, in, uh, I guess that's Palo Alto. No, it's, um, what's, uh, anyway, Sand Hill Road. They're all the same to us. Don't worry. All the the suburbs bleed together. It doesn't (laughs) really matter. (laughs) It's like, is it it Red Hook or is it Williamsburg? It doesn't really matter unless you're there. Uh, Anyway, they have a shop. Um, alongside all these other VCs and are just treated as, uh, you know, another another investor that you would go shopping to. And they funded Oracle, um, which is one of, still one of the largest tech companies in the world. They do databases and hardware. And, um, and uh, you know, and the government continues, you know, for most of the, the big players to be a major customer, even if they didn't underwrite the research, you know. So a lot of the organizing you see at companies like Google, and Amazon right now, I mean, actual worker organizing has to do with uh, people getting uncomfortable with their employers going all in on, mm. like, surveillance state right, stuff. Right, right, and border Whether drones and whatnot. Or, or China or Israel or wherever. Right. I mean, yeah, the drone stuff, too. Right. Um, so, yeah, ev- pretty much everything that people associate with being something that capitalism gifted us with its, you know, magic invisible hand powers is actually something that taxpayers paid for and that companies were allowed to privatize even the internet itself there's um oh god your google story is incredible the the cut and paste of like the entirety of you know human information just uh through stanford's computers i mean i had no idea it was such an absolute enclosure of the commons what they did well, I mean, if you think about what a Google search index is, it's basically a massive copyright violation, right? <laughs> yeah. whatever, your, whatever your feelings are about copyright, I mean, what they've done is crawl the Internet, make a copy of everything, host it on their own servers, and make it searchable. And when they first sort of started getting big, there were people that made that very argument in court and lost because they were – uh, forced to go through the Ninth Circuit <laughs> Federal Court of Appeals, which is stacked with people who favor the tech industry. And Jerry Brown, you know, like sort of a uh, a poster child for a hippie, neoliberal, progressive, you know, democratic politician, stalwart, right, uh, was even back in the day, you know, Steve Jobs got fired from Apple, then there was talk that Jerry Brown would potentially replace him as CEO of Apple. I mean, that's that's how thoroughly greased the skids are on the, ah, uh, on the revolving door over there. So yeah, it's, I mean, you can't, you can't separate um, 
you know, any of the, the major tech companies from the government. I mean, uh, even if, even if the patents have gone into private hands, like it's government research that funded it. And, you know, that part of the reason that, uh, these companies are kind of stalling out and find it, you know, they're looking for growth overseas. They're looking for growth in terms of how they can squeeze users and suppliers. That's because there hasn't been government investment at the scale there was in, you know, the sixties and seventies. I mean, the, the, uh, disinvestment, uh, in that kind of thing is real. It's just, there's like a 20 to 30 year lag and bringing some of these technologies yeah. to, uh, the mass market. So, you know, when that's, people talk uh, that's about pure research, right? There's a conveyor belt and it, and it takes uh, almost a generation, right? For that to reach down into the consumer's hands. I think Jamie had a question. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Um, so as the, as we've moved from sort of the like Keynesian new deal era to the neoliberal period and the government has tinkered with markets more and more, has this kind of public investment accelerated in the tech sector or no? I think it's tapered off. Interesting. Um, what, what, what you see, and that's why I'm saying, you know, you haven't, like computer, the computers you can go buy, uh, you know, at Best Buy or the Apple Store or whatever today are pretty much as fast as they were if you were to go buy one 10 years ago. Like not that much has changed. It's kind of stalled out. And there's all kinds of explanations for why. But I think the main thing is like the lack of, public investment in original research. Mm. I mean, you hear about quantum computing and things like this. I'm not sure if and when they'll materialize, but there's it's nothing like the kind of investment that was happening during the Cold War. What you see, in, I mean, if you look at just the straight numbers, I'm sure that, you know, there's all this buzz about cybersecurity, right? Like that's the new pipeline for government money to go into the tech sector. Mm. But that doesn't really... That goes to boondoggles. It doesn't go yeah. to like someone doing the kind of peer research that leads to something like a touchscreen device, right? right. Uh, it's 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 more people skimming and less people getting you know government grants to do basic research. So you know I, it's funny because um, like all of those innovations that resulted in like consumer product explosion in the 90s and the 2000s uh is stuff when uh, that was researched at a time when you know our public investment was like much more in line with like the eisenhower era than in line with the reagan thatcher era um and that's because like the legacy of the post-war period and the space race and you know you actually had a governing elite in the united states that understood that you needed to have a public investment policy. (laughs) That's super interesting because it really doesn't track with something like big pharma, right? Where um, in the late nineties and early two thousands, as that became a hugely profitable business, they ramped up their lobbying efforts to the point where, you know, a third of all NIH funding was going to research drugs to be, you know, gifted directly to big pharma. So like, and and it's not like tech doesn't have the money or the lobbying power to do that, but I guess, was it just not necessary for them? Well, they're more concerned about chase. I guess this is the point I'm trying to make, and that's a good way to help me crystallize it. Like they're more interested now in chasing short-term returns, Mm. right? So like, I guess the example in tech would be like Elon Musk, right? One of the king 
douchebags of Silicon thank, Valley. Thank you. Yes. Like, and all of his all of his fanboys are so excited about his rockets and stuff. But if you look at it, what's actually happened is, you know, what was a, uh, you know, a massive publicly funded effort to have a space program through NASA, like so NASA's budget's been cut and they outsource it to people like Musk and Bezos to do the development. And if you follow the news about their companies, it's about how they're constantly cutting corners. Like the new thing, the new thing uh, from Musk's uh, company, SpaceX, which uh, I think this made it into the book, but like nicknamed among workers as slave X (laughs) (laughs) because of how hard he drives people. And, you know, uh, some of this worry free. Right. So like the latest news from them was like they're redesigning one of their rockets to have fewer boosters. And uh, this is going to be good for X, Y, Z, according to the bought and paid for tech press. But if you actually dig down, it's because they're trying to cut costs and juice their margins to keep the investors happy uh, because they're failing, because they don't have the actual sort of like scientific and technical talent that you would get in a government or publicly run program. Now because I want to. I want to. Their workers. Right, right. <laughs> I, I actually want to. I want to point to that because uh, there was some interesting passages later on in your book about the labor uh, situation itself. <clears throat> A good friend of the show, his name is uh, Jeff from Georgia, dissident peasant, reminded me uh, in one of his podcasts about Taylorism, uh, the scientific management from the late uh, 19th, early 20th century. And what that process was, was taking skilled trade uh, artisanal work that had been passed down from generation to generation and breaking it up, uh, breaking up this aristocracy of labor, uh, the process itself into different, uh, you know, segments, uh, different parts of an assembly line. And in this way, not only as Big Bill Hayward famously said, the uh, engineer's brain is under the workman's cap. Not only take that craft knowledge and be able to utilize it directly at behest of capital, but also lower the ability of workers to actually organize uh, because now they went from skilled to a semi-skilled worker. And as you point out, uh, not just in the horrific Mechanical Turk uh, Amazon part of your book, but just in general, you've reached this point now where a lot of the uh, skills that one would maybe be able to use 20, 30 years ago are now open source and people can merely copy and paste them. And there's been a real degradation, it seems like, uh, in the actual fruits of what uh, even these you know young uh, entrepreneurial Ivy League programmer guys can even get coming out of school uh, in this current labor environment, just with competition and all that. Yeah, I mean that the Taylorism. I mean the concept of it is really the obsession of every you know uh, middle manager and and executive in Silicon Valley. I mean every programmer's job is ultimately to automate themselves out of work. Yes, uh, yes. And you know as far as um, as far as it was, what that looks like for people who are actually doing that job, it means that, you know, they're, I don't know where I heard, I can't, I can't vouch for the accuracy of the statement, but I've, I've heard many people say it and it's, I, it rings true to me, but that, you know, programmers specifically are, are some of the, uh, the workers with the least autonomy in mm. the modern American economy. Like if you think about, um, what their, uh, what their actual job looks like day to day. I mean, they, they are given, it's almost like working in an intelligence agency. I mean, they're given a piece of a project to work on. They don't have any say in what the Mm. like final product is going to look like. Um, their, their permissions in terms of what they can access may be restricted, uh, at their workstation, which is going to be constantly monitored. Um, and, uh, 
they don't have uh it's designed in such a way that they like not only are they trying to automate a task uh they are uh detached or alienated from and and not just alienated from like the the profit side but alienated from deciding what it's going to look like like if you're an if you're a builder like i am you thank do, you right you <laughs> do have some connection to uh what the final thing is going to look like even if there's an architect involved right mm -hmm. you're going to be the person deciding this actually isn't going to work programmer is in a much more restricted position as far as what the final product of their labor is going to be used for and you know i i, I felt this really painfully at the startup i worked at in london because we had this uh, it was a freelance photo news agency right um and we went through an acquisition it was horrible and that's kind of where i developed some some deep skepticism about what the tech industry was about. I was actually pretty bullish on it because I'd been a newspaper guy and I'd gotten laid off from newspapers and I just looked over at the tech people. I was like, oh, they seem a lot happier and they get paid better, you know? I didn't see any reason why journalism couldn't just live online. Right. Um, and I found myself in this startup where we had like 30,000 freelancers, you know, and they were all underpaid. So like nobody was getting what they were worth. Um, and you know, the photojournalist union in the UK was very skeptical of the startup, I think for good reason. Um, and I was hoping that, you know, we could scale this thing up enough to where we could effectively have bargaining power for our photographers. Right. If we were big enough as an agency. Um, but then we got bought by Bill Gates and like, he was not interested in that. Right. Aww. Like, his drones were interested in, um, you know, uh, squeezing the most that they could out of the, the photographers because that's how they make money. So that was like uh, naivete on my part. But then there was much more mundane stuff like, so 30,000 contributors, a lot of them didn't speak English, but everything had to be in English to sell it. So how do you, how do you, and part of what made a photo sell or not was like, uh, did it have a coherent caption and mm. headline and all of that stuff, you know, that a copy editor or a, like you or the photographer themselves would do. So there was like a week where I worked with the tech people to, this was my big tech bro innovation for solving this. So I was like, Oh, we can build something that detects whether this sentence has a verb in it. And if, if there's no verb, then it's not a sentence and God. somebody needs to look at it. I hate it, that right? so much. So this was my big idea, and um, I realized at a certain point that I was automating copy editors out of a job, right? Like I was, uh, I was not, I was helping solve a problem for the company, but I was also eliminating something that I used to get paid to do, ah. right? Like write headlines for stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and double bind, yeah. essentially like every programmer, anybody that works in the industry and it, uh, is trying to disrupt <laughs> some other industry is in that position. And what gets lost is craft. I mean, yeah. uh, the idea, the idea of having, um, something that is, uh, may God, I sound like such a Portland guy, but like, like <laughs> taking an artisanal approach where you're actually making something for people to, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, on whatever terms they acquire it, whether they purchase it or it's some kind of like hippie co-op situation. Like, is it, on to it totally, exactly. yeah, it's, a, it's, but it's a totally different, uh, relationship to, uh, labor and the products of labor than, uh, automation. 
like all of the money, all the investor money is going to AI automation because that suits capital better if you have a replicable solution that doesn't require human intervention. Yes. Um, there, it's just, you know, the reality with AI, though, I mean, you brought up Mechanical Turk, which is the service that Amazon has where basically you log on and you can you can do stuff like basically fill out captures or surveys For and get like fractions. Of, yeah. Like lucky if you get a penny. Some of the jobs are like fractions of pennies. So you have to do like 10 clicks to earn a penny. It's like back and... to the fucking 19th century with piecework. It's, it's absolutely fucking insane. Uh, all of the yeah. ways in which these techniques have uh, gone into this industry. Yep. Jamie, you had something? And like, yeah, it's certainly becoming that way with freelance writing as well. Like it used to be that you could make a relatively okay living as a freelance writer. And now like the the rates have gone down so much that like a lot of the assignments, you wouldn't be making minimum wage per hour if you break it down to the amount that you're getting paid. Well, not only, I mean... You. Yeah, just in t I'm also everybody's got to be like a one man band, right? Like my friends that work in broadcast and have full time jobs are like, so you're the camera person, you're the sound guy, you're on, <laughs> you're on camera, and you know somehow you're supposed to make sure it all comes together. It's uh, you know it's it's across all industries, and that is like the common agenda that, um, you know, the tech industry shares with yeah, finance capital. Yeah, it, it sucks. It really it, it like it's affected my life very on a very personal level right because i i like doing the podcast i like working at the majority report but if i could still make a decent living as a writer i would absolutely be doing that and like fucking facebook i mean i don't know if people know about this but like facebook was really pushing video for a while Gatekeepers. Uh, they were really like they were just fucking us in the ass constantly on the traffic for our blog posts when I used to work at Death and Taxes, which was part of Spin Media. Um, and a lot of companies pivoted to video as a result, and a lot of writers lost their jobs and either didn't get them back, um, didn't find new jobs, or just, like, tried to find new careers. Um, and then it came out that Facebook was knowingly releasing falsified data on the video, and the video people lost their jobs, too. It's it's like it's fucking absurd and it's been going on for as long as I've been in the media because I graduated college in 2007, right, when things were getting pretty hairy for everybody in the industry, I think. And like even when I was a high volume blogger, like these companies absolutely do not care about the quality of the work that you're putting out. Um, they don't care if you're doing a good job, if you're connecting with your readers. They only care about numbers. Quantity. And that's a terrible obviously terrible way to organize something that is both like an art a craft arguably and like in the case of real journalism a public good well they don't even care if the numbers are real or not i mean that's kind of that's kind of why my book comes off so scathing is because it's i'm not just sort of attacking their uh approach i'm judging it on its own terms and showing how it fails yeah, well that's the most um, humiliating part right Yes. I mean, it's, it, it, it is really, uh, I, I was like, I think that the industry is wising up, but it was really disconcerting to see how long a lot of people in the media business imagined that like Facebook was their friend. Like you even saw the New York times sort of set up a distribution partnership and it, it reveals a lot 
of how deep the rot is in our in our system um, and how long like uh, inequality has been out of control. Because if if you believed in the meritocracy, you would think that somebody who is in an industry in a in a leadership position that was about to get gobbled up and shat out and destroyed by a competing competing industry, you know, in this case, like media about to get destroyed by tech, that if there were a meritocratic system, then the bosses in media would recognize, uh, you know, that these people were not their friends and uh, take appropriate measures. But instead, what happened is you had a bunch of like nepotism cases uh, and incompetence um, running the show because that's how things actually work, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, in our in our system, it's not a merit- meritocracy in terms of competence, uh, and uh, and then people who saw it in their interest to you know sell out their colleagues in order to get a uh, a higher paying gig with the uh, you know the new. Uh, the new game in town. And I think you didn't see a lot of journalists speaking up more about the problems with the tech industry because they were making a calculation that if their magazine or newspaper or whatever fails, as most of them seem destined to do, uh, they want to get a job at a tech company. Yeah, I want to... It's bong rip time, folks. Uh, If you have a bong, if you have a bowl, (laughs) if you got a spliff, uh, light it up right here because Jamie and I talked a lot about you know what was revealed in your book and we came up with uh some theses on on how to kind of connect these dots together we did. so Corey, uh you know bear with us Le- listeners bear with us smoke them if you got them uh, you know have a shot on us yeah because uh, here we go should, um, I, should i start by uh saying it in a way that makes sense to people and then you can say it in a weird confusing way with jargon eh, whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> okay that's uh it takes all kinds right do you want me to? Or you don't no, I do. Okay. I do. So, um, okay. If you believe in Marx's theory of value, as all of us do here at the Antifada, and I think our guest does as well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, value is created in one of two ways. It's created by labor exploitation and resource extraction. Um, and you can define resource extraction more broadly, not just to mean the extraction of like precious metals from the earth, but any enclosure of something that was previously the commons. So that could be anything from um, people's subconscious minds to women's bodies. Um, Sylvia Federici has some really good work on that, how this primitive accumulation is constantly happening to this day in order to keep capitalism running. It could mean, I don't know, taking all of the information that's on the internet and copying and pasting it and saying, this is ours now. And we're providing a a service. Um, So the way that the successful tech companies make money, it seems to me, uh, is mostly related to that. So it's either taking something like a taxi service and finding ways around uh, both regulations it's, and it's called regulatory labor. arbitrage, okay? And yeah, <laughs> As Corey finding a way around the regulations <laughs> and labor issues, so that now you have an unregulated taxi company with all these exploited workers who are nonetheless considered like sole proprietorships, which you know and I know is fucking ridiculous. Um, or you have something like Google, which takes all the information on the internet and copies and pastes it. Or like apps, even like these sleep apps that like collect data on you when you're sleeping which is like creepy on a number of levels. Um, 
And they, they also have to find the wiggle room in the economy, right? Because as we all know, um, Amazon is not primarily making money on selling commodities to people anymore. Um, commodities are relatively cheap now. Uh, it's still a somewhat profitable sector to produce commodities. But the one area that was really ripe for uh, colonization was social reproduction, right? Everything that happens outside of the official workplace, everything people do so they can continue working. And when we're just told that we have to be working all the time um, and we need to spend as little time as possible doing everything else, um, it stands to reason that you're going to pay someone else to do it for you, like whether it's food delivery or your laundry or like even your your sleep cycle. So like that's all that's all a huge mess, right? And what what babe? Oh, can I say? Yeah, can I just yeah, yeah. Bounce Could, off of what yes, you're saying. Yes, please do. Without any jargon, don't worry. I think it, I think this this point ties it together because it ties together the um, material basis of it, which, as you said, um, you know, capital needs profits. It needs an adequate rate of profit. Uh, in this phase of globalization, you know, the last 40, 50 years, a lot of commodity production has been basically moved around the world. And another thing called labor uh, price arbitrage has happened where you have a similar, you know, uh, productive apparatus, but you just move it to China where you can pay people much, much less. That then means that the labor composition of each of those commodities is going down. So commodities, whether they're durable or just everyday commodities, are relatively cheap right now. Commodities being things that you buy. Yes, exactly. Um, in including food, for example, right? So capital, which is this sort of not anti-human but kind of a human beast that kind of directs uh, social production, can no longer find an adequate rate of return in the production of actual goods. And as Jamie says... What these companies do, whether it's Airbnb with your modes of transportation or whether it's Facebook, right, your actual social interactions with one another, is to colonize essentially the social, that those elements of social reproduction. Um, unfor and I, like Corey was saying before, that the, um, you know, a lot of the shine has come off of Silicon Valley. I think it's not merely just that they've run out of this technological cycle, but it's that all the parts of our lives that could be commodified and turned into services to be done by other people and to be done by apps, those are running out. When you're getting to the point where you have sleep apps, it is, you know, that basically the train has left the station. And I would just finish on, and then Corey, I'll let you go, is that all of this serves as a way to destroy the social, right? You have a nuclear family, you have a group of friends, you have neighbors, when all of a sudden now you're living in an Airbnb and you're taking an Uber everywhere and your friends are just on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever it is, it is literally destroying the social fabric that allows capitalism to actually continue as, you know, into the future. Or so, it adapts to the destruction of the social fabric, right? Like we were saying earlier, these companies are double dipping because they're benefiting from a system that creates all these problems where everyone's atomized yes. and working all the time and everyone's lonely One and then they make money then pretending to solve those problems for people. Right, exactly. So basically what we're seeing now is this end stage where not only has capital completely implicated itself in our lives in terms of production, but now has come into our homes 
and uh, it's come into our social lives and has essentially gone so far as to colonize our minds with this sort of Pavlovian, you know, red uh, notification signal that triggers something in us that we have to click on that device and we have to keep it with us, which, by the way, is stealing all of our data at the same time and putting us into a giant fucking database and just making us part of the product itself because they're selling our clicks and our eyeballs to everybody. Corey, what's your take you, on all that? That's good, babe. That's a, I'm sorry that's I doubted you. That's <laughs> a lot to respond from. I could pick I up in a lot of different <laughs> ways, but you know, the idea of getting inside your head and inside social relationships um, gets to one of the questions that I was trying to answer in my reporting, and I wasn't totally sure. I'm still not totally sure, but you know, that was, is tech at a point where it's somehow predominant over finance? Like who's call, who's really calling the shots? Uh, like is tech, um, you know, serving the needs of finance capital and the state, or is it in some ways trying to like subsume and replace them? Mm. And, you know, when you get into the weird uh, corners, like it's all weird, but like Bitcoin people, for instance, ah, right? Yes, like pedo-currency, pedo insult money. Yes, we're familiar with it. Yeah, I'm insult money. That's great. <laughs> they talk about, um, they talk about, you know, really uh, subsuming these kind of economic relationships that you're talking about and supplanting it with a new system. And I think on a level that the whole digital enterprise is about creating a controllable digital facsimile of our reality. Yes. And when I say controllable, I mean like something that is, you know, this gets into the surveillance piece and like, why would somebody like, why did, why do they care about your sleep habits? You know, in some ways it is about an attempt for the tech industry to break free from VCs and finance and the government and all of these institutions that enable it yes. and basically dominate every aspect of our existence. Exactly. And to put a, to, to go to the logical conclusion of that, I think that goes a long way towards understanding why this neo-reactionary or at least this in, insanely uh, libertarian uh, ideology exists in Silicon Valley, A, because engineers are about control. They're about the quantitative, right? But also it's that they, these people are no longer content you know, merely to make profits. They want complete control. And they realize that libertarianism is not going to be voted in democratically because it's not a popular thing, but they have enough capital, they have enough power, political and otherwise, to imagine an exit. And whether that exit is, in their ideology, a uh, seed stead, uh, if it is uh, going off into space, if it's creating competitive governments in order to have corporate control over a state, these people's desire for control is insanely ideological and turning into a direct political project that is very yeah. fucking frightening. Yeah, like when yeah. I say that capitalism is going to end, uh, I don't necessarily mean that we're going to get socialism, right? Yeah. Like. We might get this insane, like, neo-feudalist kind of rentierism, uh, which is arguably worse than capitalism, the kind that we have now. Uh, and that would probably necessitate the destruction or withering away of the bourgeois state, um, which previously the private sector depended on in order to prop it up and make it exist and even give its money value right like we see efforts already to circumvent the 
government-backed value of money with, Fiat currency. with uh, cryptocurrency and whatnot. <laughs> and, you know, maybe they're not going so well, but in the future, they might. Uh, and it's just like, it's a scary, scary vision of how we're going to live. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, if they're even going to let most of us continue living <laughs> after this when they don't need our labor for anything anymore. Or if, if we'll, like, barely, like, like, basically the most people will be part of a surplus population, mm. you know, and what happens to surplus populations now? It's not good. Yeah. Corey, that was a lot to respond to, too. Um, should we get into Neo reaction or should we say that for a bonus? Maybe we should. Well, I can, I can, you know, you depending how you it? want it, it's up to you how to divide it. But, you know, I was, what Jamie just said is like uh, the great, uh, and terrifying, uh, real life example is the alliance between Peter Thiel and Steve Bannon, you know, like Peter Thiel, nice. I talk about a lot in my book. He's, you know, I'm sure people know him as the like vampire billionaire who shut, got Gawker shut down over like, uh, his petty grudge basically. Um, using, uh, he, using Hulk Hogan's at, hog though. He used Hulk Hogan's hog. To do yeah. It. But without at an arm's length thing, like he <laughs> secretly funded. I heard, the lo- I heard it's a baby's lawsuit. arm's length, but yes, go on. Ew. Uh, <laughs> uh, just trying to break anyway, up the uh, you know, theoretical talk <laughs> his uh his sort of big breakthrough is paypal and paypal was i mean if you go back and look at the way that he and his co-founders uh well i guess they weren't like his partners eventual partners elon musk and pierre omidyar oh. talked about the company and the, and the vision that united them was like actually a science fiction vision uh of uh a world uh, with a privatized currency. So part of their goal with PayPal was something that, you know, you heard Bitcoin people talking about 15 years later, which is like getting the government out of the currency business and having currency be like a private uh, sort of voluntary, you know, mushy headed, <laughs> like libertarian uh, concept um, but also enabling tax evasion and right. money laundering and all kinds of things that they deemed as, you know, their rights as individual corporate persons or whatever. Um, so, you know, that idea, you know, and, and Neo Reaction is this it was a sort of uh, alt-right precursor. You don't hear much about it anymore, but very much aligned with the alt-right in terms of its racial theories. Uh, but the idea is um, one that Teal apparently embraces quite a bit. Basically, uh, you know, all governments are illegitimate and the future needs to be run by corporations. Um, and, you know, we it, basically their vision is like a, a corporate feudal patchwork, um, sort of like I mentioned earlier, where everybody can sort of vote once which corporate fiefdom they want to belong to. Oh, boy. Uh, and, you know, that does entail a lot of different. Uh, it doesn't tail the end of capitalism for, for one, but it's not it's not a system that most people would uh, consent to if you know they really understood what it was about. So that's where they come up with a lot of this liberation rhetoric, right? Like the idea that these tools are are something that uh, that give us opportunities right. and, that you know, positivity, cr- yeah. create new possibilities mm-hmm. and change the world. I mean, yeah, we're talking about changing the world, but also reordering things around a completely lopsided hierarchy where you've got guys like Peter Thiel who own everything, 
uh, and Elon Musk, you know, Musk is another, like the way he talks about his Mars colony, right? And <laughs> part of the reason that these guys are obsessed with space exploration they're, and all of this, they're acutely aware of, you know, these um, intrinsic flaws in capitalism. They're, in, they're acutely aware of the end of capitalism being somewhat imminent because of historical forces, right? And they understand that they need to keep uh, acquiring resources, so they're turning to space, right? Mm -hmm. Elon Musk says he would, you know, he's a good guy, and he would actually run uh, his Mars colony as a direct <laughs> democracy, right? Everybody gets to vote on everything uh, through some kind of blockchain system. Oh, but yes, I'm sure he would be a very fair and just king. <laughs> Well, exactly. When you step back, <laughs> not it's a like, mad okay, king but... one bit. I tried to <laughs> so warn people about AI, to... but they would not listen to me. Sorry. <laughs> everybody gets to vote in this new libertarian, you know, blank slate, except you just step back a little bit and you realize that everybody's literal life support systems are dependent on, uh, you know, Musk Corp. Right. So how can how can you have democracy with that level of economic inequality? And that's like what they're trying to pitch and trick people on. Not so, to mention they're can't. destroying um, the world with climate change, the capitalist system at the same time. Right? Well, they're very aware of that, I think. <laughs> but like, I'm not. Oh, go ahead. It reminds me. OK, so people like Peter Thiel uh, and like all those dark enlightenment figures, or as I like to call them, the endarkenment like, they're, like, pretty front and center with how fucking evil they are and how they just want to, like, drink our blood and live forever and have us be their slaves or maybe just kill us. Uh, I'm almost more concerned about the left wing of that because mm. for every Peter Thiel, you've got a few more billionaires who claim to be liberal mm. on some level for all the with all the associations, all the contradictions that that term holds in the U.S. So it it kind of reminds me of like, well, I mean, first of all, there's like, I mean, this is, I think this is why I got so annoyed when uh, Anna Kasparian uh, claimed Grover Norquist as being a liberal on some level because he goes to Burning Man. <laughs> like that socially liberal, fiscally conservative thing does a neat trick of hiding, you know, just how fucking authoritarian these people are and i don't really care i don't think the socially liberal part really matters if you're only willing to fight for the rights of say m gay people minorities women whatever whatever to the point that it doesn't involve standing up to capital which as we all know is what that's actually going to take if you actually want to protect people's rights but like even during the obama years um like a lot of hillary clinton's rhetoric is all about entrepreneurship and um it, it's almost kind of magical the way they think that value can be created and you could just like put the 99% into the 1% and then everyone <laughs> will be a billionaire and everyone will be happy. Um, and Jake Flores was actually talking about this on his show in reference to Harry Potter, uh. right? And why all of these liberals mm. are so obsessed with Harry Potter, because if you think about it, magic, oh. it's something that you could do without really getting off your ass. Um, it doesn't change. It doesn't, it doesn't come from anywhere, right? It just comes out of thin air and somehow makes things better, but you don't, act, you don't actually have to change anything else in the world. It doesn't have to come from somewhere. Whereas, you know, if you believe Marx, like it does have to come from somewhere, you know, am I yeah, making sense? Yeah. We went, no, we went there and, to the you know, Harry Obama Potter. Sorry. And Cass Sunstein are like, great examples of 
you know, if we'd had a Hillary Clinton administration, we'd be talking about this, you know, instead of, you know, fascist street violence and all like concentration camps and all of the stuff that we've got to confront now, because, you know, like Obama and his administration were so tight with Silicon Valley. As far as, you know, Cass Sunstein goes, he was very much promoting a kind of authoritarianism, uh, a managed society using digital tools with like a technocratic elite kind of nudging people where they needed to go. Right. To serve basically the interests of capital. Uh, We don't have to worry about that as much now, I think, because, you know, I'm not an accelerationist, but we got the accelerationist timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, instead, we're all we're being, accelerationists now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whether we like it or not. So, you know, instead we're confronting, like, I think something that is much scarier, you know? And it's amazing how many uh, Silicon Valley investor types have discovered their uh, love of China, you know? At first they had, like, the, the industry was kind of skeptical or, uh, you know, even uh, anti-China because uh, they wouldn't get act like the Communist Party wouldn't give them access to their market. But now the companies have learned to uh, sort of play along <laughs> with what the Chinese government wants. And in short order, China has prototypes uh, basically a Silicon Valley approved vision of post-capitalism, you know, and the things that they're uh, interested in pushing are the, exactly the kind of things that should terrify us. Right. Like, like human genetic manipulation, uh, you know, total surveillance, social credit scores, like Silicon Valley loves this stuff. Most people are horrified, but you know, they're way into it. And the fact that, you know, the, make of it what you will communist party is uh not my communism well (laughs) right i mean you know it's been that way for a long time in china i mean if 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 your communist party is crushing union organizing i mean Mm, you know there's a problem there and that's been going on for a long time that's another episode uh, but go on yeah yeah sure but i mean what we're really talking about is you know a fundamental reordering and you know if there's for all this sort of like humor and you know uh, uh, slices of life. I tried to pack into the the book, you know, slices of dystopian life. Uh, I hope people come away with that awareness. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I came away with. Um, I knew that things were bad in the tech sector. I heard a lot of rhetoric about, you know, breaking up big tech. Uh, I didn't take it all that seriously because, uh, you know, got some bigger fish to fry. But after reading your book, I say that these fucking ruling class elite tech bro monsters need to be overthrown. Now, at the end of your book, you complete it with one sentence that I think beautifully encapsulates, you know, one way we can do it, which is off with their heads. That's the mindset. A very simple solution to a complex problem, as you say. Now, <laughs> without actually bringing out the guillotines, we want to do a little what is to be, to be done here, right? Um, you know, we obviously cannot ke- keep these people from continuing to do what they do, uh, not just a climate level, but a social and economic level, right? Politically, too, they need to be... Um, I, can I say castrated or is that gendered? Uh, anyways, they they need to be neutered. Okay? <laughs> neutralized. Neutralized. Thank you very much. They need to be spayed and or neutered. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> so 
I wanted to get your take on the concept of the UBI uh, or universal basic income, which uh, I think I'm a little bit skeptical of when I hear it supported by these like tech libertarian folks, um, because it seems like a way for them to retain their position, basically, and have the rest of us, you know, they don't need us anymore. Capitalists don't need us anymore to uh, make them money with our labor. So, but they still need us to buy things from them. So like, right. it seems almost like if we slide into this world where uh, we have this, you know, stingy, but livable UBI funded by taxes, presumably from most of these companies, it almost seems like a weird circular, circular logic that almost shouldn't be able to continue the process of capital accumulation, right? Because they're giving us the money via taxes, like the government, whatever state still exists, is like redistributing it to us. And then we're giving it back to them by paying basically to stay alive, to socially <laughs> reproduce ourselves. To do Airbnb and, and take, uh, yeah. Yeah, and we're just like passing the money back and forth and that, doesn't really seem like it fulfills the um, money to commodities to money prime uh, function that would enable capitalist growth to continue, no? Uh, I think that's probably true. I'm not sure how it pencils out exactly. Uh, but, you know, the main reason to be skeptical is just, as you said, it, it doesn't do anything to change the fundamental social relationship. So I don't think UBI should be a goal in and of itself for the left. And I think people should be very wary of making alliances with, you know, people that are billionaires or, or want to be billionaires who think they can plot social policy. And, and, you know, another part of the reason to be skeptical is when you hear libertarians talking about it. And part of what excites politicians, even, you know, liberal Democrats about it is, oh, we can get a UBI funded by taxes and then get rid of food stamps right, right. Yeah. tax, you know, low income tax credits and things like that. that. Milton, Friedman's, the, uh, yes. Milton Friedman's. Yeah. Position. That's, that's the other thing I was going to say, right? Like any excuse on their part to shrink the welfare state and the administrative state and like any, really any state at all that exists to serve as a check on their power. Now I, I feel like people misunderstand my politics sometimes when I say that I'm a libertarian socialist. Uh, I'm a socialist first, right? <laughs> so to the degree that state power deserves to exist, uh, especially in the present day, is uh, as a check on the power of private industry and a mode of redistribution. And the problem with the bourgeois state is that it is too heavily compromised by the private sector and not democratic enough. Well, before Corey jumps in on that, I want to bring up a real world example of how, you know, the bourgeois state through some sort of social democratic means might actually be able to mitigate the worst of these things. Uh, I think it was in it was several months ago, Jeremy Corbyn, well, you know, the good social Democrat, democratic socialist from the UK, uh, leader of the Labour Party, came up with the idea of creating essentially a um, public social network, one that would not sell your data to anybody else, one that could be democratically organized. People could have a vote on, you know, what goes on there. Um, France actually had a uh, nationalized Internet system called Minitel 
that started in the 80s and lasted all the way up, uh, I think, until 2012 or something like that. So do you think, Corey, that there's maybe a way for uh, big the power of big tech to be confronted with the use of uh, state power, breaking them up and perhaps uh, potentially nationalizing them for the common good? Yeah, I think that's absolutely what needs to happen. And I don't think that like consumer boycotts alone are enough. I don't think that like just adopting a new regulatory framework is enough. Definitely when it comes to the actual physical infrastructure, like fiber lines and things like that, no reason they shouldn't be publicly owned and every reason that they should be. I mean, when it's not just like VCs taking over the media and, and intruding on our politics and you know private lives and turning that into a commodity like data that they can sell like it's also the telecoms that own the physical infrastructure i mean they have tremendous power and eventually they will vertically integrate with the likes of amazon i mean with google's like fiber program that they rolled out and apparently botched horribly in uh i think it was louisville um that uh, that's a, a sign of, of like further consolidation to come, right? Uh, so, you know, I think it's pretty urgent that antitrust laws be applied to these companies. Um, and, you know, I would love to see somebody like AOC or Bernie talking about nationalization, um, especially, I mean, like Twitter is a good example, right? It seems like oh, a... Yeah pretty frivolous thing right yeah. but it's 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 actually become the way that the uh absolute ruler's voice gets communicated to the public and uh shapes what they think about every second of the day and has never uh, plugged tu- in right never turned a profit am i correct <laughs> Uh, I don't know about tr- Twitter's profitability. Uh, I know, you know, a lot of companies, Amazon being sort of the, um, you know, the famous example has really low margins and that's like a growth strategy. So like if Twitter hasn't been profitable, it's because its investors don't care. Yeah. They're trying to get market dominance, you know, so they can consolidate with that, you know, they can acquire other companies and become even more powerful and inescapable. Um, but that's like, I think there's a case for nationalizing companies like Facebook and Twitter, because I mean, what is like, Facebook is basically like a high tech phone book, right? Like, what are they actually, what are they actually providing? And when you talk, when you think about the kind of data that they're able to gather, I mean, you know, like even, uh, Google too, like sort of, phone book library like service right mm-hmm. google competes not just with uh, other kinds of media but with libraries mm-hmm. um and there's a lot i think you know indexing uh, like the dewey decimal system in some ways better than like a search engine right anyway let's just say that there's a utility to these services let's take that for granted people do sure. use them because they get some benefit out of it uh they're common what, carriers what, as, as they said right when they were uh nationalizing uh you know say uh, water or electricity. Right? Yeah, that, that's their argument. I mean, for the kind of data that they collect, I don't see how you could have it be in any kind of semblance of democratic control, uh, except for having it be nationalized. Yeah. Um, you know, another alternative that I've considered is that simply the business models that they use of selling people's data, right, of having information about your habits and preferences uh, be uh, under their exclusive control and you have no access to it should just simply be an illegal way to make money. And that would, you know, that would knock these companies out of business overnight. Right, I right. think that one, one of the, um, 
one of the approaches that has been tried in Europe is passing laws that say consumers own their data, right? Mm -hmm. So there has to be much more clear opt-in. Like that's almost the kind of piecemeal Obama progressive sort of solution that hasn't really resulted in any change in the market power of these companies or, or any pushback on their ambitions, which as we talked about are really totalitarian Mm -hmm. in essence. So yeah, I think the solutions are pretty old fashioned, like labor agitation, organizing, Ah, labor agitation, especially antitrust, you know? Yeah. Uh, on that tip, uh, to take us out because we're going to say some shit now that might maybe get us banned from Patreon. We'll see how far Jamie goes with it, but I have a contrarian take right here. Oh, I'm uh... going to get us banned from Patreon now. (laughs) It's you now. Um, I've got a contrarian take actually on the Amazon HQ too. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of pushback and now there's some talk maybe that Amazon doesn't want to come here after all because politicians are really mean to him, really mean to them and whatever. It might be worth the $3 billion in subsidies for Amazon to come into our union town, right? And think that they can do to New York City what they've done elsewhere solely because of the fact that you've got a lot of pissed off working class New Yorkers that are either part of trade unions or come from families with trade unions. You can even conceive of Amazon HQ2 coming to New York City and tech workers organizing within that. So even outside of like a national uh, nationalization, which would be a political campaign, maybe even part and parcel of that would be to try to get these folks who believe that they are these snowflake uh, entrepreneurs who are grinding and hustling, you know, get rich or die uh, engineering tech bro dudes and maybe I don't know, impart to them or help them to get some semblance and awareness of the actual structural power they have as workers within the workplace to organize and potentially even take control over the means of production. Boom. You know, I don't want to get all East Coast West. I don't want to get all East Coast West Coast about it, but you know, San Francisco is pretty heavy union town too. So like they're, they're drawing from a different uh, pool or in Seattle. I mean, I, you're talking Amazon, so I should reorient. But I mean, Seattle, you know, one of the strongholds of the Wobblies over the last century. I mean, like right. uh, big trades uh, unions and public sector unions. And, um, you know, like I'm not sh- I'm pretty sure Microsoft doesn't have a lot of unions, but also like a history of dealing with the tech industry. So it's not I, I, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to sound super negative, but I don't think it's. It's not something that people haven't tried. Right. Um, well, and, you know, part of the reason these companies have gotten so invest so much investment and, you know, backing from Wall Street is how effective they are at combating unionization simply by, you know, structure and the management techniques like we talked about. Um, they like they're good. At, they're good at union busting. And, um, you know, the other part of the element that. Uh, was missing in Seattle, San Francisco, back west, that I think would also have a hard time, uh, you know, coming up with in New York is having political allies that support that project. And, mm. and, you know, I think Amazon wavering on its New York HQ2 thing is part of a ploy to scare the politicians, right? Ooh, you would know better than us. <laughs> that, that kind of brings me to what I was going to say, which is um, I think you kind of hit upon the limits of both unionism and at least you know as we currently conceive of it and uh bourgeois electoralism in reigning in these beasts right because seattle has a very liberal government 
as I understand it. They thought that they were going to be able to levy taxes on Amazon in order to deal with their homeless problem. And at the end of the day, um, Amazon swung its dick around and it had the bigger dick because so much of this stuff is so overdetermined. You heard it here by... first. Bezos does have a big dick. Oh, go on. no. <laughs> oh, I, I did that to myself. Uh, but like so much of this is so overdetermined, not only by the oligarchs who have most of the money and most of the power, but like the market itself, right? So, like, they actually couldn't do it. They blinked. The labor unions also couldn't do it. So I think that kind of points to the kinds of solutions that we're going to need down the road are going to be more drastic than that. And, like, I know I sound like a broken fucking record, but I don't know how the capitalist mode of production can continue and still, uh, like, like there, like folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders think we can set the clock back to like the golden age of capitalism mm -hmm. and bring back Keynesian economics. And what they're missing in that equation is like neoliberalism wasn't just something that politicians imposed on us to be mean or because they lost their way, right? It wasn't something that the people in these think tanks imposed on us to be mean. It was a pragmatic solution to the crisis of profitability and the crisis of capitalism that we experienced in the 70s and whose aftershocks are still being felt to this day. So in that sense, like it suddenly doesn't seem so crazy to think that we need to transition from the capitalist mode of production to something more, you know, democratic, um, human oriented, use value oriented, blah, 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 so that we can finally let go of this tiger that we're holding by the tail. So, Corey, it seems like Jamie has uh, come around to your position of a 18th century solution to a 21st century problem. <laughs> yeah, I think if you can keep the headquarters from being built, then, uh, you know, what are they going to do? So how so how serious are <laughs> you not... with uh, with off with their heads? That That's the ultimate. Well, question. look, you know, I I've gotten this question at readings and stuff and um, you're in a safe you know, space. I... Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, uh, I grew up. Uh, pretty much in a, uh, you know, middle-class transitioning to underclass sort of environment, you know, uh, rural trailer park kind of childhood. And, um, I feel like rich people have been trying to kill me my entire life. So I'm happy if they sweat whether or not I'm serious, you know, uh, and what, like, I think it's great to see them so scared now. Uh, and I, and I do hope, you know, like the fact that they're, uh, there's a bit of reporting in the book, uh, or, you know, citing other people's reporting about, uh, rich people, uh, you know, doubling down on panic rooms yeah. and, um, uh, bunkers and, uh, New Zealand, uh, properties mm -hmm. so they can escape not only the climate, uh, uh, catastrophe that we're facing, but the angry, uh, alienated, uh, mob and good. I mean, you know, they should be afraid. Like we're talking about like the fate of the planet. So if these, uh, you know, tycoons uh, have a little bit of, uh, you know, uncertainty as to their, um, you know, their personal uh, physical safety, then that means they're joining the rest of us yes. <laughs> in terms of how we, we inhabit this uh this reality, unfortunately, well, I mean, I don't, I don't like, I don't advocate violence, but, uh, you know, the, 
we're talking about a parasitic class whose um, essentially uh, continued exorbitant uh, lifestyle and uh, illegitimate claim on all the resources of the planet. Uh, it's on one side, and then on the other side is the survival of every other living thing on the planet. So, you know, when you stack those things up, I think you've got to consider all your options. Well, I will say all the options on the table. I I will say this. uh, This one goes out to Elon Musk. It goes out to Peter Mm -hmm. Thiel. It goes out to their enablers. And it especially goes out to Bezos. I say, and you got to do this in like the Alex Jones way where you don't actually say it. It might be a good idea if one day we were to say off with their hogs. Veins to the brain, shoot off into orbit. How you know octagon, or much less tetragrammaton? To get the good stuff, you gotta get out to the Amazon. With any luck, your mic can score locally. Keep it on the hush when you're speaking on it vocally. Then you gotta be on the end, a known member. I think I still own mill something since November, whatever. Who need credit when cash speak? Get it, sweat, sitting on his pack since last week. We all got weaknesses, even the functioning dead. Some end up fudging numbers, bugging and lunching instead. Netflix in the head, second best trip to get chicks in the bed. 